I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. I'm down in the library. Lizzie is in the charms classroom. Demi is down in the kitchen chilling out with all the house elves. Peeves is bouncing around the trophy room. I better avoid that. Mischief managed. This podcast is the property of the Half-Blood Princesses. I'm Demi. I'm Jess. The story will begin in a flourish. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of the Half-Blood Princesses, a Harry Potter podcast. We're so excited to be back again. Yes, we are. And if you don't follow us on social media, please do so. We are on Twitter and Instagram at HB Princesses Pod, and you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching The Half Blood Princesses, a Harry Potter podcast. We also have a voicemail line, so call us at 412 228 5435 and leave us a voicemail. We will feature it in a future episode. Speaking of voicemails, we got a very nice Happy Thanksgiving one from our fan, Maddie. Let's hear it. Happy Thanksgiving to two of the most wonderful, lovely Harry Potter half-blood princesses ever. I just love you guys. I wanted to tell y'all how thankful I am for y'all's podcast. And y'all are just amazing and ever so grateful for y'all. Hope you both have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you so much, Maddie. We hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving as well. And we are so excited to ring in the holiday season. We definitely are. And now, Jess, tell everybody our topic for episode 8. Our topic is the Marauder's Map! I'm so excited for this one. And we have a special guest. Say hey to my friend Lizzie. Hi, guys! So, Lizzie, thanks so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about your Wizarding World profile? Alright, so I am a Ravenclaw. Always have been. Always will be. Yes! We finally have a Ravenclaw on the podcast! I know, you guys haven't had anybody so far, and it's made me sad. Ravenclaw is clearly the best house. Excuse me! (laughs) Not that the other houses are bad, but Ravenclaw is the best. Well, I have nobody here to defend the Hufflepuff, so I guess I'm on my own this time. Alright, my wand is hornbeam wood with unicorn hair core. It's 14 and a half inches long with supple flexibility. My Patronus is a wildcat. What team? Wildcats! <laughs> my favorite books are either Prisoner of Azkaban or Deathly Hallows for very different reasons. Prisoner of Azkaban I identified with when I was a lot younger, and then later when Deathly Hallows came out, uh, I still identified with it. So, like, they're two separate periods of my life, but, like, the same thing, kind of. Um, my favorite character is Ginny Weasley. Uh, movie Ginny, They did Movie Ginny Wrong by what they did to her but Ginny Weasley is clearly badass and so she's my favorite and my favorite Hogwarts class is charms because you learn a lot of useful stuff in it I feel like thank you so much Lizzie we will have you back for our tales of magic and mischief segment but now let's get into the quote it's time for quick quotes corner The quote for this episode comes from chapter 18 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban called Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. It was spoken by Lupin. Well, highly exciting possibilities were open to us now that we could all transform. Soon we were leaving the Shrieking Shack and roaming the school grounds and the village by night. Sirius and James transformed into such large animals they were able to keep a werewolf in check. 
I doubt any Hogwarts students ever found out more about the Hogwarts grounds and Hogsmeade than we did. And that's how we came to write the Marauders map and sign it with our nicknames. Sirius is Padfoot, Peter is Wormtail, James was Prongs. At this part in the book, Sirius, Lupin the Trio, and Scabbers are in the Shrieking Shack. Sirius, in dog form, had dragged Ron in and hurt his leg to get to Scabbers, Harry and Hermione on his heels. Lupin arrived shortly after to explain the situation and about who Scabbers really is and why he deserves to die. During his explanation, Lupin talks about how his three friends became unregistered animagi to stay with Lupin during his werewolf transformations at school, and how the Marauder's map came to be. This passage is important because we see here that James's friend group was similar to the trio. James and crew were loyal to one another and stuck by Lupin during his tough times, like the trio sticks with Harry. Also, like the trio, James and his crew were prone to mischief and were pretty smart, smart enough to design the map. This map embodies their friendship and is a testament to their time at Hogwarts. In holding the map, Harry is now closer to his dad than ever before. He's able to walk the grounds that his dad treaded before him. He also uses the Marauder's map to break rules and go on adventures. Not to mention how the repelling charm that they put on it against Snape would definitely be something Harry would have done against Malfoy if he had created the map himself. I love how you drew connections between the Marauders and the trio. I also agree that the map helps Harry become closer to his dad. In Sorcerer's Stone, he gets the invisibility cloak, which is kind of his first connection to his dad, but I feel like the map goes so much deeper. Throughout this whole thing, Harry finds out that his dad transformed into a stag as his animagus, and with help from another marauder, Lupin, Harry's able to cast his stag Patronus. So I love how Harry is able to find fun in the map and use it for rule breaking like his dad did, but also have these deeper and more personal connections through the Patronus and the animagus. I think Polly should be coming with our fun facts, but I have no idea where she is. I solemnly swear that Polly is up to no good. Oh, here she comes! Hey, it's Polly our owl! She's flying in with the fun facts! It's time for Marauder's Map Fun Facts. In French, the word marauder means a bandit, pirate, pillager, or looter. From Middle French maraud, it also means rascal. Created by Remus Lupin, Peter Pettigrew, Sirius Black, and James Potter during their time at Hogwarts, the Marauder's Map is a magical map that shows the entirety of Hogwarts and its grounds, along with the seven passageways out of the castle and into Hogsmeade. It does not show the Room of Requirement or the Chamber of Secrets. When it is not in use, the Marauder's Map looks like a large, square, very worn piece of parchment with nothing written on it. It is activated with the words, I solemnly swear I'm up to no good. Here's the description of the map from Prisoner of Azkaban. And at once, thin ink lines began to spread like a spider's web from the point that George's wand had touched. They joined each other. They crisscrossed. They fanned into every corner of the parchment. Then words began to blossom across the top. Great curly green words that proclaimed, Messrs. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, purveyors of aids to magical mischief makers, are proud to present the Marauder's Map. It was a map showing every detail of the Hogwarts castle and grounds. But the truly remarkable thing were the tiny ink dots moving around it, each labeled with a name in minuscule writing. 
It would seem that people only appear on the map if there is some reason for them to be there. Harry's dot appeared for the first time when he gained possession of the map and needed to use it. Users can clear the map and hide its secrets by saying, Mischief Managed. The map uses the homunculus charm to keep track of people in the castle. It also features a repelling spell directed at Snape. According to Pottermore slash Wizarding World, solemnly swearing you are up to no good is not an oath of dark magic, but simple rule breaking. Lupin says the map never lies. It gives the true identity of the person, whether they are disguised as an animagus, hiding under the invisibility cloak, or changed by Polyjuice Potion. The map doesn't distinguish from generations if people have the same name, which is why Harry couldn't tell if the Bartimaeus Crouch in Snape's office was the senior or the junior. There are a number of inconsistencies associated with the Marauder's map. The Weasley twins didn't notice that Professor Quirrell was always with someone named Tom Riddle on the back of his head. Some people think the map is the equivalent to a surveillance camera because you can see everything that's going on around you. But there are some ethical questions associated with this. When is it appropriate for students to spy on people? What did the marauders do with it on a daily basis? Did they just avoid teachers or use it to ambush Snape? If so, is that abusing the object? Could James have spied on Lily and plotted revenge on Snape every time they were together? Now, without further ado, we are going to present you with a map. A map of all the ways the map was used throughout our Tales of Magic and Mischief segment. Now, it's time to dive into the book topic of the week for Tales of Magic and Mischief. It's Marauder's Map time! So the first time we see the Marauder's Map is in Chapter 10 of Prisoner of Azkaban, which is called the Marauder's Map. On the last weekend of term, Ron and Hermione are excited because they get to go to Hogsmeade to do some Christmas shopping, but of course Harry couldn't come because his permission slip didn't get signed. He heads back up to Gryffindor Tower only to be stopped by the twins on the third floor, who are peeking out from behind the one-eyed witch statue. The twins beckon him into a classroom to the left of the statue. Early Christmas present for you, Harry, George said. Fred pulled something from inside his cloak with a flourish and laid it on one of the desks. Harry asks what this mysterious object is because it literally looks like a blank piece of parchment. This, Harry, is the secret of our success, said George, patting the parchment fondly. It's a wrench giving it to you, said Fred. But we decided last night your needs greater than ours. Anyway, we know it by heart, said George. We bequeath it to you. We don't really need it anymore. And what do I need with a bit of old parchment, said Harry? A bit of old parchment, said Fred, closing his eyes with a grimace, as though Harry had mortally offended him. Explain, George. So George explains that when they were young, carefree, and innocent, first years, they got in trouble with Filch for lighting a dung bomb in a corridor. Filch was pretty angry that day, and he brought the twins into his office, where he threatened them with the usual detention disembowelment. Meanwhile, the twins are not paying attention, obviously, and they notice a drawer in one of his filing cabinets marked confiscated and highly dangerous. They're intrigued, so George drops another dung bomb, and Fred steals the map. George says that they don't reckon Filch learned how to work it, but he must have suspected what it was. Fred said, This little beauties taught us more than all the teachers in this school. 
So Harry tells the twins one of my favorite British sayings, and he says, you're winding me up. (laughs) So I don't understand British people. Harry then watches George. He took out his wand, touched the parchment lightly, and said, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. The map comes to life. I'm picturing Frosty the snowman. (laughs) Oh my god. I can, I can move? I can count? One, two, three, four, five. So Harry pours over this really awesome object, and he sees Dumbledore pacing in his study. Mrs. Norris is prowling the second floor, and Peeves, as usual, is bouncing around the trophy room. He also notices the passages that lead into Hogsmeade. Fred explains that there are seven passages that lead into Hogsmeade, but Filch knows about four of them. Fred says he's sure that he and George are the only ones who know about the other three. We all know that seven is a super magical number, and I just love how there are seven secret passages that lead out of Hogwarts. I just, like, you just blew my mind with that. I'm sure I noticed that, like, seven was, like, a number before and, like, knew that, but I didn't remember it. (laughs) It blew my mind. Since there are seven passages and only three are open, three is an odd number just like seven is. I think they're also prime numbers. Yeah, three is a prime number. Yeah, seven and three are also prime numbers. Yeah. So the passage behind the mirror on the fourth floor was usable until the winter of Chamber of Secrets, but now it is caved in. And the Whomping Willow is planted right over the entrance of another passage. The twins recommend taking the final passage through the one-eyed witch statue's hump, which leads right into the cellar of Honeydukes. Let me just say here that I love how the people in Honeydukes either know about this or they just bat an eye and they don't care. Yeah, let me let me just pop up. Let me just pop up in your basement and then walk through your store and just say hi. I don't think they know about it because isn't it like a trap door kind of like under a dusty floor so like you want to really notice that it's there unless you know to look for it i mean to be fair it's probably mostly used when they have like um hogsmeade weekends so like the store is super busy with all the students loading up on candy so like are they really gonna notice one extra person yeah, that's true, but there's the other part in the books where, like, after the one Quidditch match, they throw a huge party, and I'm pretty sure the twins, like, sneak into Hogsmeade because they bring back Butterbeer and stuff. But I feel like Honey Dukes would always be super crowded. It's a candy shop. Still, though, what if the... Like, okay, think about that this way, right? Hogwarts is so old. Okay, where did the passage go before Honey Dukes? Was it just underground? I feel like maybe the, the passages were created later. Because clearly the statue was not always there either. So, like, the Chamber of Secrets might have, was, like, there originally because Salazar Slytherin built it in. But, like, some of the other stuff in the castle could have been created later. I mean, it is a thousand years history. Who do you think actually made the secret passages? Well, we know the one under the Whomping Willow was made by the school so that uh, Lupin could get out to the Shrieking Shack. Maybe the other founders did it. Like, maybe Hufflepuff because, you know... We're the ones down by the kitchens, and 
she loves food and everything. Maybe, like... <laughs> she needed more food, so she built ways out of the castle. <laughs> <laughs> it had to have been a Hufflepuff, too, because it was built into the back of the statue. Like, who else is going to think? I'm gonna <laughs> no, let's not put it in the wall. Let's not put it, like, you know, somewhere else. Let's go in the butt of the statue. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, I want to know where the passages came from. At J.K. Rowling, where did the passages come from? Okay, well, th- this actually could work, right? So that she could send house elves down through the passageways and get groceries, and they could, you know, scuttle up the little slide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so shout at the Hufflepuff, you know? Everybody thinks Hufflepuffs aren't smart because we're the nice ones. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, said George, patting the heading of the map. We owe them so much. Noble men working tirelessly to help a new generation of lawbreakers, said Fred solemnly. Solemnly! Uh, I thought of that too. I was about to say it right before you did. Finishing each other's sentences, the twins tell Harry to wipe the map clean or anyone can read it. They also tell Harry to tap it again with his wand and say, Mischief managed. So young Harry, said Fred in an uncanny impersonation of Percy, Mind you behave yourself. See you in Honeydukes, said George, winking. The twins leave smirking. I love how Fred and George treat this like the Holy Grail, and in a way it sort of is, because I would want it. What about you guys? I'd want it, but I don't think I'd actually do anything with it except people watch. Yeah, I don't think I'd actually break rules. Hufflepuffs are too good for that. I Yeah, I'm very much a rule follower, <laughs> so I would just probably sit there and be like, oh look, somebody's going to the bathroom. Like, <laughs> Justin Finch-Fletchley's in the library. <laughs> I definitely use it to stay away from Filch and Peeves, though. Or I might use it to, like, avoid the crowded hallways. Like, say, oh, there's, like, 9,000 people in the 7th floor corridor, but the 6th floor is empty. I'll just, like, loop down or frown for a second. Yeah, that's a good idea, too. I don't know. I think it'd be cool to use it to go into the restricted section. Yeah, maybe. I would just make friends with one of the professors and have them write me, like, the slips to get books out of the restricted section, because that's my go-to tactic. I don't need a math. <laughs> But that's less fun. But you can't get in trouble that way. Well, if Lockhart's around, you don't have to worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) I just read that this morning. That's (laughs) So Harry continues staring at the map, and he's watching Mrs. Norris sniff something on the ground. And then he hesitates because he remembers what Mr. Weasley said about trusting magical objects that can think for themselves, i.e. the diary. But then he reasons with himself, thinking that he isn't trying to do anything malicious, like he's not trying to steal or attack anyone, and he's just using it to get into Honeydukes. Plus, Fred and George have been using it for years without anything horrible happening, so it's probably pretty safe. So Harry leaves the classroom and he stands behind the statue. This part's really cool because his dot appears on the map. His little ink self appeared to be tapping the witch with his minute wand. Harry quickly took out his real wand and tapped the statue. Nothing happened. He looked back at the map. The tiniest speech bubble had appeared next to his figure. The word inside said, Descendium. Harry performs the spell, and sure enough, the statue's hump opened wide enough to admit a fairly thin person. This is so cool! It's literally instructing him on how to leave the castle. So Harry can go in the hump before he goes to Honeydukes, but when he comes back, he has to suck it. <laughs> <laughs> so if, wait, wait, wait. 
So if he has to suck it in, if he eats too much candy, he might throw up on his way up the hill. <laughs> oh my god. I can't with you two. So Harry goes in, slides down a slide, and lands in an earthy passageway. Harry wipes the map clean and proceeds to walk down the passageway, up some stairs, and through a trap door into the cellar of Honeydew. Here's my point about the oblivious workers, right? Harry sneaks past a worker who's coming down for jelly slugs, and he goes up the stairs and behind the counter to find Ron and Hermione. Yeah, but Harry's got his invisibility cloak. No, he doesn't. Not in this trip. Oh, I thought he did. Nope. That's why I looked this up. Oh, this one he just this one he just pops in there. I mean, he doesn't have his cloak, obviously, because he didn't know he was going anywhere. And also, this trip would have been better, except this is where he goes into the three broomsticks and learns about Sirius, which... It's kind of a downer for his first trip to the village. The next time we see the map is in chapter 14, which is called Snape's Grudge. Harry takes Ron up on the offer to meet him in Hogsmeade again, and while they're making plans in the common room, Hermione pipes in and says that she's going to tell McGonagall if Harry uses that map again. Little snitch. Snitches get stitches. We all know she would never turn them in. Let's be real. I don't know. She turned him in about the firebolt. Yeah, but in Half-Blood Prince, she didn't say anything, and I knew she was really mad. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Lizzie has a good point about the firebolt, though. That's true. Yeah. So that morning after breakfast, Harry makes sure that Hermione sees him head up the marble staircase, and then he goes to the third floor and crouches behind the one-eyed witch. He pulls out the map. Then he notices on the map that Neville is heading toward him. Poor unassuming Neville. Harry says descendium and he shoves his bag into the statue, but before he can escape, Neville comes around the corner. Harry tries to get away from Neville, saying that he's going to the library to write a vampire essay for Lupin. I'll come with you, said Neville brightly. I haven't done it either. Er, hang on, yeah, I forgot I finished it last night. Great, you can help me, said Neville, his round face anxious. I don't understand that thing about the garlic at all. Do they have to eat it, or... Neville stops talking and gasps because he sees his worst nightmare coming down the hallway. Severus Snape. Alright, so Neville steps behind Harry and Snape asks what they're doing there. He said, An odd place to meet, and then looked around at the doors on either side of them and then at the statue. We're not meeting here, said Harry. We just met here. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in the entire series. This is fantastic. You know, sometimes Harry's so smart and like really witty, but then other times you know why he's not in Ravenclaw because he can't spin stuff out of his head. Like, <laughs> I also love how Snape always, whenever he talks to Harry, he talks down to him like he's a small child, and he always says, "Indeed," and that's basically that's what he says next. He says, "Indeed," said Snape. You have a habit of turning up in unexpected places, Potter. And you are very rarely there for no good reason. I suggest the pair of you return to Gryffindor Tower where you belong. So Harry and Neville go, leaving Snape examining the one-eyed witch's head. And Harry gives Neville the password, because poor kid can't have the password currently. And he shakes him off by telling him he left his essay in the library. Can I just... Alright, I have to, you know I have to. (laughs) It's happening again. (laughs) I don't understand. I mean, I get Harry. They don't want him to come. But why not? It's not doing him any harm. Let Neville come too. How is it that hard? Just let him come. Because then he has to explain about the cloak and the map and the secret sneaking off of campus. And 
Like, I understand. Like, yeah, I feel like Neville should have been included a lot more. But, like, I, like from the beginnings. But, I, like, I understand that, like, if since they haven't at this point, like, I can understand Harry's point, too, of, like, not wanting to, like, risk getting in trouble and stuff. Harry walks past the security trolls, takes out the map, and realizes that the third floor is deserted and Snape is safely back in his office where he belongs. This allows Harry to meet his bag at the bottom of the statue, go under the invisibility cloak, wipe the map clean, and go into Hogsmeade to meet Ron outside Honeydukes. They're terrorizing Malfoy, Harry hits everybody with mud and slime, and he lobs a stick at Crab's back. Crab thinks that Ron did this to him, and he walks toward Ron, but Harry sticks out a leg, and this would have been hilarious if Crab's foot didn't catch the hem of Harry's cloak, which revealed Harry's face to everybody, and it was floating in midair. Awkward. Malfoy screeches, and the three run away. But Harry has to run too, otherwise he's going to get in trouble, but he does, so. Anyways, Harry leaves his cloak in the corner of the passageway back to the castle as it might be a dead giveaway if he is caught. He climbs up the slide and steps out from behind the statue just as Snape comes by. Harry's face is sweaty and his hands are muddy when he sees Snape and Snape catches him red-handed or (laughs) muddy-handed. It's very punny but I think it's appropriate. (laughs) And he's dragged into Snape's office for interrogation. So Harry tries to wipe his muddy hands clean under his robes as they go to Snape's office. There's some back and forth in which Snape talks about Malfoy seeing Harry's head in Hogsmeade, realizing that Harry has no proof whatsoever that he was in Gryffindor Tower, and Snape obviously has to take the chance to insult Harry's dad. Snape also bares his teeth and tells Harry to turn out his pockets, or they would go straight to the Dumbledore. The Dumbledore? I meant to say that! The Dumbledore? (laughs) To the Dumbledore. (laughs) So Harry has to pull out his bag from Zonko's along with the Marauder's map, and he tells Snape that the bag was from when Ron was in Hogsmeade last time, and that Ron gave it to him. So then Snape looks at the map, and Harry says it's just spare parchment, but when Snape says that Harry must not need an old piece of parchment and moves his hand toward the fire, Harry says, No! Harry said quickly. So, said Snape, his long nostrils quivering, is this another treasured gift from Mr. Weasley? Or is it something else? A letter, perhaps? Written in invisible ink? Or instructions to get into Hogsmeade without passing the Dementors? Harry blinks, which is like a total dead giveaway here. Snape tries the spells reveal your secret and show yourself on the map, but it stays blank. Professor Severus Snape, master of this school, commands you to yield the information you conceal, Snape said, hitting the map with his wand. As though an invisible hand were writing upon it, Words appeared on the smooth surface of the map. Mr. Mooney presents his compliments to Professor Snape and begs him to keep his abnormally large nose out of other people's business. So Snape freezes and Harry's staring at it, but the map isn't done yet. It keeps going. More writing was appearing beneath the first. Mr. Prongs agrees with Mr. Mooney and would like to add that Professor Snape is an ugly git. Mr. Padfoot would like to register his astonishment that an idiot like that ever became professor. 
So Harry closes his eyes and reopens them, and the last message appears. Mr. Wormtail bids Professor Snape good day and advises him to wash his hair, the slime ball. I hate Peter Pettigrew, but come on, that's the best one out of all four. I was actually going to say that the first three have these, like, clever, witty statements, and then Wormtail comes up with, like, the slime ball, like a second grader or something. (laughs) Okay, so I want to make two more points here. So Lupin was the first person to insult Snape, which is probably because he was the first on the map, but everybody else after that is out of order. That's a good point. It's kind of surprising that Lupin would be first because he's supposedly the nicest of all of them. Yeah, I can see that. And then J.K. Rowling actually answered this question about why James's voice is here. Um, because in some magical objects, you can leave a recording of yourself, so it appears even after you die, which is pretty cool. It's also really interesting, because on the map, we have Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, Prawns, and we know that James died first, then Sirius, then Wormtail, and then Lupin, so they died in the reverse names order, as on the map. Brain burst. <laughs> Or whatever you say. Brain blast. Brain blast. blast. (laughs) Snape is angry at this point. He throws flu powder into the fire and he calls for Lupin, who strides out of the fire and into the office. Snape points at the map. An odd, closed expression appeared on Lupin's face. Snape continues to point at the map and says that it is clearly full of dark magic, which is Lupin's area of expertise. Lupin says that it can't be dark magic. It's just a piece of parchment that insults anyone who reads it that probably came from a joke shop like Zonko's. Snape isn't buying this. You don't think it more likely that he got it directly from the manufacturers? Lupin plays dumb and looks confused. He asks Harry if he knows any of these men, and Harry says no. So Lupin says it's a Zonko's product. Ron chooses this time to rush into the room, proclaiming that he gave Harry the stuff from Zonko's. You know, shout out to Ron for, like, coming in clutch using the exact same excuse that Harry had. That's friendship right there. It really is. And it's such good timing, too, because Lupin's like, see? That settles that matter. And he takes the map and he leads the boys out of the office with a veiled excuse to talk to them about the vampire essay that he assigned. So they go into the entrance hall and Lupin says that he knows that this map was confiscated by Filch years ago. And he says that he's astounded that Harry didn't hand it in and that he is not giving it back to Harry. Harry asks, why did Snape think I got it from the manufacturers? Lupin says that these map makers would have wanted to lure Harry out of the school as that would be extremely entertaining for them. Harry asks if Lupin knows these people and Lupin says yes. Don't expect me to cover up for you again, Harry. I cannot make you take Sirius Black seriously. But I would have thought that what you have heard when the Dementors draw near you would have had more of an effect on you. Your parents gave their lives to keep you alive, Harry. A poor way to repay them. Gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. So they go up the marble staircase and Ron says that it's all his fault because he persuaded Harry to do it. To go to Hogsmeade. Lupin's right. It was stupid. We shouldn't have done it. Alright, so the next time we see the Marauder's Map happening is in chapter 17. It's called Cat, Rat, and Dog. 
So this is right after Buckbeak is executed and the trio are standing up on a hill and Scabbers decides to run away from Ron. Uh, Ron runs after him with Hermione and Harry following and then all of a sudden the dog shows up and grabs Ron and drags him into a tunnel under the Whomping Willow. Harry and Hermione follow and they um, get stopped by the tree but then Crookshank shows up and uh, pops that little knot on the tree and lets them in. So they go into the tunnel which is uh, the one that Fred had pointed out to Harry and so Harry says he doesn't know where the tunnel comes out. It's marked on the map, but Fred and George said no one's ever gotten into it. It goes off the edge of the map, but it looks like it ends up in Hogsmeade. They come out of the tunnel at a dusty, banged up room that Hermione quickly identifies as the Shrieking Shack. So then they're looking for Ron, and there is a handy little streak in the dust where the dog, which we know is Sirius, drags Ron upstairs, and they find Ron propped up against the bed. In true trio fashion, they run over to him without surveying the rest of the room, leaving Ron to point out that the dog is not a dog, but is actually the escaped Azkaban prisoner Sirius Black. I'm just imagining Ron in the, like, Rupert Grant as Ron, like, with the waving his finger in the third movie. He's the dog! He's an animagus! So Ron shows his inner Gryffindor and boldly proclaims that if Sirius wants to kill Harry, he'll have to kill them too. Sirius cryptically says, there's only going to be one murder here tonight, which of course is very ominous and sets Harry off. And this leads into my favorite excerpt of action slash like inner monologue in the book. He had forgotten about magic. He'd forgotten that he was short and skinny and 13, whereas Black was a tall, full-grown man. All Harry knew was that he wanted to hurt Black as badly as he could and that he didn't care how much he got hurt in return. So I'm apparently a sucker for these kind of fight scenes. Um, because when I was going back over this to look this all up, I read this scene like five times just because I loved it and I was not paying attention to like write this down. I was like just super focused because I like it so much. Yeah, I really like this scene because obviously he thinks that the one murder is going to be him, right? He thinks that Sirius Black is back to finish what he started with James and Lily and that he's going to murder Harry for Voldemort. And... Like, even though Voldemort at this point isn't alive, Death Eaters are Death Eaters. So Harry is just jumping to that conclusion, which, I mean, I would too, right? I just heard that this guy killed my parents, and he's here, and he's probably gonna kill me. Yeah, no, and so, like, this whole scene, like, even continuing on, is, like, very clearly, it's one of those, like, we're gonna, there's only one murder here tonight, it's all cryptic, and, like, it's very easily interpreted as Harry's gonna die. Um, of course, we know there's four more books after this, so Harry doesn't die, spoiler alert. Then Lupin pops in and is revealed to be a werewolf because Hermione figured out after Snape set the essay. And Lupin uh, tells Hermione, you're the cleverest witch of your age that I've ever met, Hermione. Harry asks Lupin how he knew where Black and the trio were. The map, said Lupin the Marauder's map. Harry, of course, goes, how do you know how to work it? So Lupin says, of course I know how to work it, waving his hand impatiently. I helped write it. I'm Mooney. That was my friend's nickname for me at school. Lupin explains that he'd been watching the trio go to Hagrid's and was astonished to see when they left with another person. Lupin thought the map must have been malfunctioning, 
because he saw his previously thought to be dead best friend, Peter Pettigrew, who is, of course, Scabbers. So this brings up the classic question, how come Harry or Fred and George not notice that Ron was sharing his bed with some random dude? Did they think that 12-year-old, 13-year-old Ron was, like, having slumber parties with some guy named Peter Pettigrew? Or (laughs) what was going on with that? Yeah, like, this is one of the biggest plot holes, I think, with the map. And it's definitely an inconsistency there. And, I mean, think about it. Percy had Scabbers first. So if Fred and George wanted to play a prank on Percy, wouldn't they do a classic prank you in your sleep kind of thing? And if so, wouldn't they check to see if Percy was in his bed and maybe look next to him and see who else is there. I mean, how has this been missed? I don't know. I feel like Fred and George might have just thought it was like a glitch or something. (laughs) I don't know. But it's so weird, though. It's so weird. And that's so obvious that, like, I feel like that's something that JK should have catched, or at least her editor should have been like, do you want to, like, double-check this? There's something not right here. But, yeah, it's super weird. I mean, it was even addressed when they turned it into the movie. Like, Harry saw Peter Pettigrew running around the castle after he'd heard of Peter Pettigrew. It was like, how is he here? He's supposed to be dead. But, like, in the books, they never talk about that. So, canonically, Ron's just sharing his bed with Peter Pettigrew and nobody notices. Yeah, but think about it, too. Like, how the story would have been different if they would have noticed Peter on the map because the entire time, like the whole point of the third book is that everybody thinks Sirius is after Harry. And this whole part at the end when they're in the chicken shack, like they think that Sirius is after Harry. And so like if they don't know that anybody else is there, like that's kind of a surprise to everybody. So it's just curious, like thinking about, you know, how that would have been different if we would have known about Peter. And if this plot hole didn't exist. To ramp up the stakes of this book a little bit, maybe he could have seen Peter Pettigrew on the map right before he got to the Willow. Like, what if Lupin hadn't taken the map from him and he was looking to see if the coast was clear and they saw the dog, which Harry thought was the Grim, and maybe he followed it because he was wondering what it was. And then Scabbers hopped out and Harry was looking at the map and he goes, OMG! This is a person, and then he has a talk with Sirius. Yeah, like he discovered the identity of both Peter and Sirius at the same time via the map. Yeah, that would have been cool too. Yeah, that would have been really cool. All right, so this is one of those chapters that doesn't end nicely. So it kind of just like ends, and then we go into chapter 18, which is called Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. And it just starts right up where the last chapter ended off, where Hermione, in true Hermione fashion, says that Peter Pettigrew can't be an Animagus because people would know. And then lists off that the Ministry of Magic keeps records of Animagi and didn't see him on the list. This is something I would do, where it'd be like, how would people not know that he's an Animagus? Because obviously, Professor McGonagall told us that they keep records of these kind of things. So this was kind of just reading this. I'm like, ah, poor little innocent Hermione doesn't know that the government is corrupt yet. I would have done the same thing at her age, too. Like, this would have been me to a T. Lupin reveals that there used to be three unregistered anime guy, Peter, Sirius, and James, running around campus with him when he would turn every month. He talked about how they were trying to figure out, they, like, were trying to figure out where Lupin went every month, and then they 
all decided to become animals so they could go run around together. It's in these adventures that Lupin says they found out more about the Hogwarts grounds and Hogsmeade than any student ever did, about which they decided to create the Marauder's Map. I love how when you become an Animagus, you can't choose the animal that you turn into. But if you could choose what animal you turned into, what would you guys want to be as your Animagus form? Dog. <laughs> People feed you and pet you and love you if you're a dog. If you're a freaking, like, stag, they're like, oh no, a deer, I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> Joyce is my Animagus form. <laughs> I don't know what so I'd want to be. I feel like you'd be a cat. No, I don't like cats. I don't know. But you're very sassy and kind of, you know, you're kind of like a diva, so you could be a cat. I was going to say dolphin, but that, like, wouldn't work on land. <laughs> I'm going to be a dolphin, poof, in the middle of the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I could be a bunny rabbit. Like a cute little fluffy bunny. They pull this off in their fifth year, right? Like, yeah. how the heck do you do that? I mean, Hermione's smart, and she made the polyjuice potion, but I think this is just even better. I agree with that, but it also definitely says that they all pulled it off in their fifth year, finally. So that basically means that they were literally just waiting on Peter. So does that mean that James and Sirius had pulled it off earlier, like in their third or fourth years? Probably. I mean, Peter wasn't very bright. Lupin admits that he feels guilty for what they did as students, and that he hasn't told Dumbledore of his friends becoming anime guy. He tells them of a joke that Black played on Snape in their youth that nearly got him killed. Sirius told Snape how to get into the tunnel under the Whomping Willow to follow Lupin and indulge his curiosity as to where Lupin went every month. Snape, of course, stuck his abnormally large nose right into it and nearly got killed by Lupin in his full werewolf state, had James not saved him, illuminating the reason that Snape hates Lupin. How did no other students notice that Lupin, and then later all four marauders, disappeared every month? Were there not other students that shared the dormitory? So, like, what if Harry and Ron just, like, disappeared? Would Neville, Seamus, and Dean just not notice that their roommates decided to not come back once a month? And then the other question I have is, like, how were they not noticed in Hogsmeade? Like, a dog wandering around, that was one thing, but even Sirius had to be careful not to be seen too often because they would like figure it out so how does a werewolf a dog a rat and a stag wander around hogsmeade and not get noticed i mean it's not like there's a lot of trees in hogsmeade right it's a village it's a street you go down the street to different places i can just imagine them going into like rose murda's and like they imperious her and she just gives them butterbeer and they leave <laughs> Yeah, and, like, going back to what you were talking about before about other students not noticing, too, like, wouldn't they have to, like, transform before they left the castle or, like, left the ground? So how would nobody notice these four animals? I mean, you can easily miss Peter because he's irrelevant. But, like, the other ones, like, how do you not miss these big four-legged animals going around these places? I don't know. I mean, I feel like they would sneak out in James's invisibility cloak, right? Mm -hmm. And they'd walk into the village, transform. Someone sees these animals in the middle of the street and kind of runs, and they, I guess, have a heyday with the place? I've, I have no idea. But they definitely snuck out under the cloak. But how they got into the village and did what they had to do is beyond me. I don't know. I want a whole spinoff book on the Marauders. There definitely should be. Yeah. 
But anyways, none of this would have been possible without the map, so shout out to these guys who just basically left their legacy behind, even though it was in Filch's office for a lot of the time. I want to know how it got to Filch's office. Like, who did it get taken from? Probably Wormtail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he probably had it open, and his nose was pressed up against it, and he bumped into Filch. <laughs> I can see that happening. <laughs> So at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban, after the whole situation was serious and Buckbeak and everything, the trio is talking to Hagrid, and Hagrid tells them that Lupin is leaving. Snape let it slip to the Slytherins that Lupin is a werewolf, so he's leaving. Harry is super crushed by this, so he runs off to see Lupin in his office. When he walks in, Lupin is packing, and Lupin looks up and smiles and tells Harry that he saw him coming on the map. Harry asks him if this is all true with him leaving and everything, and Lupin says it is. This time tomorrow, the owls will start arriving from parents. They will not want a werewolf teaching their children, Harry. And after last night, I see their point. I could have been any of you. That must never happen again. Harry says, you're the best defense against the dark arts teacher we've ever had. I love this here. Okay, because Lupin is so consciously aware of his being a werewolf. And he was careless the night before not taking the potion. And look what happened. Luckily, nobody got hurt. But no one's kicking him out of the school. Yes, Snape is being Snape and trying to humiliate him. Yes, Lupin is going to be getting owls from parents and all that. But Dumbledore isn't kicking him out. Lupin is leaving on his own and he's making that choice himself. And I think that says a lot about his character. I think um, so like the whole Lupin is a werewolf and like the idea of disability correlate there is i think that's really important in this section because technically nobody has kicked him out yet but there's that stigma against being a werewolf and it's like he says no nobody's gonna want a werewolf teaching their children well like he's not a bad teacher he's like of the of the six or seven in the series he's the best one but I think what that really is showing is, like, the whole society says that disabilities are bad, and people with disabilities tend to internalize that. And I feel like that just, I got way deep there. But that's where I saw this happening, was that Lupin was taking this identity of the disability and letting it take over instead of trying to fight in this moment. And I think that is, like kind of a huge point that tends to get missed. Yeah, I totally agree. And that is also seen with Hagrid too in Goblet of Fire. Once we find out he's a half giant, he hides out in his hut because he's embarrassed by that and by the article written. So I think it is really important to bring up these differences in races and the different kind of creatures um, because you definitely see how disability and being different is portrayed in the wizarding world which if you think about it they're not really disabled i mean lupin is far more able to cause destruction and so is hagrid but that doesn't mean that they're not able to control themselves lupin can with the potion and hagrid can because he's hagrid he's not gonna hurt a fly that's kind of true in like the muggle world as well like i mean there definitely are people with disabilities who are more disabled and can't participate in certain ways in the same way 
but I mean, you have somebody who is paralyzed and they go in a wheelchair and they can still go around like everybody else. It's just a little bit different. And so that's the same thing with Lupin. He takes his potion and that's his equivalent of a wheelchair where it allows him to be able to function in society. It's just how we view those people with disabilities that really changes it. So I think that's, it's kind of a cool thing. And honestly, if I'd gone into literature more, I feel like I would have written a paper at some point about disability in the Harry Potter world. As a person who's visually impaired, like I completely identify with this. I think it's true. I mean, there are ways that visually impaired people have to adapt. I mean, think about voiceover on your cell phone. People come up to me and they're like, why is your phone talking to you so quickly? And it's like, one, because I understand it. Two, because I don't want to hear, I don't want you to hear what it's saying. And three, because it helps me read faster. Like, I can't look at my phone. You can. I agree. That's a really good point you brought up, Lizzie. One more point to make about this is that Harry doesn't care Lupin's a werewolf. Harry doesn't care that Hagrid is half giant. None, none of the trio do. I mean, I guess Ron kind of a little bit was like, he's a werewolf, but you know, that's Ron, but he eventually comes around. Um, Ron is in the wizarding world much deeper than Harry and Hermione because he grew up with these beliefs of werewolves are bad and half giants are bad. So now that he's meeting a werewolf and a half giant that are very good people, He's kind of developing his own thoughts about them. So I think in a way it's good to see Ron have that initial reaction of being resistant and seeing him come around because that is a realistic thing that could happen. But as a whole, like the trio is so accepting of them and I love seeing that in the books. Yeah, no, what you brought up with Ron is a like amazing point in the realism of some of these of these characters. Like Ron initially believes if not like in his heart, or at least he's been taught to believe that half bloods are not half bloods, but half breeds are bad, and that like werewolves are bad, and it's always like, ooh, a werewolf, we don't want to do that. But then he meets Lupin, and it challenges that belief where he's like, oh, well, Lupin's not bad, and must mean that all werewolves are not bad. So it breaks the stereotype. And it's this learning curve that we all have to go through at some point in order to move on as a society. But, like, it shows us this through a story. And I think that's really cool the way Rowling wrote these characters. Lupin tells Harry that Dumbledore told him that Harry saved a lot of lives last night. And if there's anything that Lupin is proud of, it's how much Harry learned. And he asks him about his Patronus, and Harry tells him all about the Patronus. Lupin also confirms here that his father's Patronus was a stag. And I love how Harry's Patronus is what his father's Animagus and stag Patronus were. Lupin then gives Harry back the invisibility cloak that had been left in the Shrieking Shack, and then he also gives him the Marauder's Map. I am no longer your teacher, so I don't feel guilty about giving you back this as well. It's no use to me, and I dare say you, Ron, and Hermione will find uses for it. Harry takes the map and says, You told me Mooney, Wormtail, Patfoot, and Prawns would have wanted to lure me out of school. You said they'd have thought it was funny. And then Lupin says, And so we would have. I have no hesitation in saying that James would have been highly disappointed if his son had never found any of the secret passages out of the castle. Then Dumbledore knocks on the door and tells Lupin that his carriage is waiting for him, and as Lupin is leaving, he tells Harry, Well, goodbye, Harry. It has been a real pleasure teaching you. I feel sure we'll meet again sometime. 
I love how Lupin gives Harry the map back because we know when Lupin was at school that he was made prefect to try to keep his friends under control. And we all know how that worked out because Lupin still took part in the rule breaking. So I love to see him here literally encouraging Harry and his friends to break rules and use this map. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to me. I didn't think of that. I think it's similar to how Ron and Hermione were made prefects in their fifth year even though they were always breaking the rules so I think Dumbledore just kind of likes to give the rule breakers a little bit of a leg up there (laughs) yeah (laughs) so now we're going to talk about the times the Marauders map was used in the rest of the series starting with Goblet of Fire one of my favorite parts in the book so after Harry talks to Cedric after the Yule Ball and Cedric tells Harry to take his egg for a bath and go to the prefect's bathroom, Harry put this off for quite a while and then he decided to take Cedric's advice. Harry planned his excursion carefully because he had been caught out of bed and out of bounds by Filch, the caretaker, in the middle of the night once before. The invisibility cloak would of course be essential and as an added precaution, Harry thought he would take the Marauder's Map, which, next to the cloak, was the most useful aid to rule-breaking Harry owned. So Harry takes this map and he periodically checks it to make sure he gets to the Prefect's bathroom without being caught, which he does successfully. After he learns of the egg's clue, he leaves the Prefect's bathroom and is heading back to Gryffindor Tower when something on the map catches his attention. A single dot was flitting around the room in the bottom left-hand corner, Snape's office. But the dot wasn't labeled Severus Snape. It was Bartimius Crouch. So this is shocking to Harry because Crouch is supposed to be ill, which is why he wasn't able to come to the Yule Ball. So what's he doing in Snape's office at 1am? Because this is Harry Potter, he has to go check it out. So here comes one of my favorite parts. So Harry is off to check out Snape's office, and when he's going down the staircase, he forgets about the trick step halfway down. So his leg gets stuck and, like, sinks through the step. And so Harry, like, wobbles, and then the egg slips from under his arm, and he tries to catch it, but he can't. And while the egg is, like, bouncing down the stairs, like, the the sound that it's emitting when it hits every step is, like, described as being a bass drum, which is super loud. So this thing is, like, making so much noise. Then Harry's invisibility cloak slips, so he tries to grab that, but then the map slips and slides down six steps, and that's out of his reach, so he can't tap it and say, mischief manage so this is just like a terrible situation for our pal here Felch comes out at this point and it's so funny because the egg is like wailing like crazy and he thinks that Peeve stole this egg and he realizes that it was one of the triwizard clues so he's like peas has been stealing i'm gonna get you for this peas and all this stuff so he's like super mad and then he doesn't see the map because as he's like climbing the steps Snape comes out and they kind of have a little back and forth which is super funny because Bilch all he cares about is Peeves and Snape like doesn't give a crap about Peeves because somebody broke into his office and he wants to know who it was and what they were doing in there. At this point there's clunking sounds because Moody aka Barty Crouch Jr. is coming over and (laughs) this is what he says and I I cannot with it pajama party is it (laughs) (laughs) and they always describe his voice as a growl so it's even funnier 
pajama party, is it? <laughs> but British, because I can't growl and do British. Also, this is super funny because we all know that Moody's magical eye can see through invisibility cloaks. So he sees Harry, like, stuck in the step, which makes me ask the question again, which I probably asked a million times to a bunch of people. How is his eye allowed? Because he's mad-eye freaking moody. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love his magical eye. Alright, so Filch spills the tea that somebody was in Snape's office. Snape is super mad about this. And Moody, like, will not let it drop. Snape is trying to brush it off as, like, just students stealing potions ingredients. But Moody's like, uh-uh. And he asks if Snape is hiding anything in his office. Snape says he isn't. And, but Moody, like, doesn't believe him. But Snape's like, you searched my office, which he did when he arrived. And... This is super interesting because it gets tossed around things like second chances and spots that don't come off, which is definitely foreshadowing to the fact that we soon find out that Snape is an ex-Death Eater and the spot that doesn't come off that Moody is referring to is Snape's dark mark. But it's also interesting because Moody at this point isn't actually Moody, but Barty Crouch Jr. And so he is technically being given a second chance, although not legally. And he, too, has a spot that won't come off. It's a really interesting, like, point in the plot. Yeah, definitely. Moody spots the Marauder's map and tells Snape that he dropped something. And at this point, Harry goes into full panic mode and starts waving his arms. And he's mouthing, it's mine, mine, to get Moody's attention. So as Snape is, like, reaching out to get it, um, Moody does Accio parchment and summons it to him. But Snape does see what's on it, and he starts putting two and two together. All right, here we go. I get to do my Snape voice again. Potter, he said quietly. What's that? Said Moody calmly, folding up the map and pocketing it. Potter, Snape snarled. And he actually turned his head and stared right at the place where Harry was, as though he could suddenly see him. That egg is Potter's egg. That piece of parchment belongs to Potter. I have seen it before. I recognize it. Potter is here. Potter in his invisibility cloak. <laughs> Which, like, I love how Snape goes off on this tangent. And Moody is, like, not having any of it. Because Snape starts to, like, do that thing where you're, like, walking somewhere. He's walking up the sets, but he's, like, holding his arms out in front of him, like, feeling his way because he knows Harry's invisible, so he's trying to touch him. And Moody puts a major stop to this. There's nothing there, Snape, but I'll be happy to tell the headmaster how fast your mind jumped to Harry Potter. <laughs> oh my god, he's unconstipated! <laughs> Picturing Mad-Eye Moody sitting on a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Moody continues by saying that he and Dumbledore are both curious about who's got it in for Harry. And Snape majorly backtracks and says that Harry is often known for, you know, wandering around the castle at night and he should be stopped for his own safety, like Snape gives a crap. But eventually Snape goes to bed and Moody convinces Filch to hand over the egg and now Moody and Harry are left alone. Moody asks Harry what the map is, and Harry tells him that it's a map of Hogwarts. Moody is obviously super fascinated by this. So Harry is still stuck in the step at this point, and Moody helps him out, but he's still, like, super focused on the map. He asks Harry if he happened to see who was in Snape's office, and Harry says that he did, and it was Mr. Crouch. And Moody asks him if he was sure about this. Harry says he is, and Moody thinks this is very interesting. 
Harry asks Moody why Crouch would have been in Snape's office, and he explains that, you know, all things have been happening because of the dark mark of the World Cup, etc. And we learn that Crouch hates dark wizards as much as Moody or more. And Moody says, oh, if there's one thing I hate, it's a Death Eater who walked free. And we know this is very important because it's also foreshadowing to Snape being a Death Eater previously and also the whole situation with Barty Crouch Jr. If this map is smart enough to know where every single person is on the Hogwarts grounds and like it can figure out when an Animagus is there because it like lists the person's name, how come it doesn't like specify between Barty Crouch and Barty Crouch Jr.? Yeah, that's really interesting how it didn't say senior or junior. That's one of the inconsistencies with it. But then again, these plot holes with the map that we've discovered have actually worked in our favor because it's built suspense in the books. Yeah, like what we were talking about before in Prisoner of Azkaban, like if we knew Peter Pettigrew was on it, that would have lost a whole element of surprise. Here, if it said Barty Crouch Jr. and not Senior, at this point, Harry had not gone into the pensive yet, so he didn't know that Barty Crouch Jr. existed. So at this moment, it wouldn't have been a big deal, but eventually, like, if he would have known there was another Barty Crouch, then that would have bought a big flash moment for the reader and Harry. So now Harry thinks he's going to be punished, but Moody asks if he can borrow the map. Harry says yes, because it's the least that he can do after Moody basically saved his butt from not getting in trouble with Snape or Filch. So then Moody says something very interesting to me. Good boy, growled Moody. I can make good use of this. This might be exactly what I've been looking for. So then they head back to Moody's office before they part ways. This is when Moody tells Harry, you know, like, you should consider being an Auror. And that is really what started Harry's whole thought process and motivation to be an Auror. So I think it's interesting that he got that advice from Barty Crouch Jr., But this whole part as a whole, I think it's very interesting because we know that the Marauders and the twins and Harry and his friends only used the map for just rule breaking and for fun. But here we see it being used for evil because it obviously fell into the wrong hands. At the end of the book, when Barty Crouch Jr. is given Veritas Serum, the whole story comes out. So we know that he's been taking Pology's potion, turning into Mad-Eye Moody. And when Barty Crouch Sr. came onto the Hogwarts grounds, when Harry and Victor Crumb saw him appearing to be acting insane, the son, Barty Crouch Jr., saw him on the map. When Dumbledore told him as Moody to go check things out, Barty Crouch Jr. wore the invisibility cloak and went down. He killed his father and transfigured his body into a bone and buried it. So this is some real dark stuff that basically the map helped bring about. And also, like, if Barty Crouch Jr. hadn't taken the map, then I feel like somebody would have noticed something off sooner. But this is another place where the map kind of held back and then allowed a surprise at the end. Yeah, and this object was created for fun adventures and pranks, but like any magical object, it has the capacity for evil. And I think JK would be remiss if she didn't show us what would have happened and could have happened if this was used for evil. Yeah, I think it's really important that we saw that. 
Next, we're going to move on to Order of the Phoenix. We see the map first being used when the first Dumbledore's army meeting is about to take place. Harry and the trio use it to make sure they can get to the seventh floor without being caught. He looks at the map and sees that Filch is on the second floor and Mrs. Norris is on the fourth floor. Also, Umbridge is in her office, so the coast is clear. He also pulls out the map again after the meeting to make sure all of the members make it back to their dormitories safely. He lets them leave in groups of threes and fours and watches as their dots make it back to their dormitories. Harry, Ron, and Hermione also continue to check the map as they make it back to Gryffindor Tower after the Dumbledore's army meeting. I love how the map is used here because even though the DA is doing good and learning defensive spells because a certain defense against the dark arts teacher doesn't want to teach them how to do defensive magic they're still technically breaking rules under her ridiculous decree but it's nice to see the map being used in a way to kind of help them out and keep them safe and not being caught the second time we see the map being used in order is when Hagrid comes back after his journey to find the giants. Harry, Ron, and Hermione look out of the window in Gryffindor Tower and see that Hagrid's hut light is on, and so, of course, they want to go down and see him. Harry and Ron run up to the boys' dormitory so Harry can grab the invisibility cloak and the map, and Hermione comes down a few minutes later wearing a scarf, gloves, and one of her elf hats that she knitted. And they check the map as they're leaving the castle. They don't see Filch or Mrs. Norris, but they do pass nearly headless Nick, who is singing something under his breath, and it sounds suspiciously like Weasley is our king. <laughs> so they get out of the castle safely, and they're able to go down to Hagrid's hut and hear about his story. So in Half-Blood Prince, during their first apparition lesson, Harry overhears Draco telling Crabbe and Goyle to keep a lookout for him while he's doing whatever he's doing. Obviously, Harry gets super interested about what Draco is doing. So after the lesson, Ron and Harry look at the Marauder's map, and they see that he is in the Slytherin common room, but Harry still wants to keep a lookout from here on. Well, I'm keeping an eye on him from now on. And the moment I see him lurking somewhere with Crab and Goyle keeping watch outside, it'll be on with the old invisibility cloak and off to see what he's... But then he stops talking because Neville walks into the room. <laughs> Perfect timing, Neville. Love you! Despite his determination to catch Malfoy out, Harry had no luck at all over the next couple of weeks. Although he consulted the map as often as he could, sometimes making unnecessary visits to the bathroom between lessons to search it, he did not once see Malfoy anywhere suspicious. Admittedly, he saw Crabbe and Goyle moving around the castle on their own more often than usual, sometimes remaining stationary in deserted corridors. But at these times, Malfoy was not only nowhere near them, but impossible to locate on the map at all. This was most mysterious. Harry first believes that Draco must be leaving the castle, but he can't see how he could be doing this because of the high security measures in Hogwarts, so he decides he just must be missing his dot among the many on the map. And this is why Harry is not in Ravenclaw, because he spent most of the last year in the Room of Requirement, and so he should have seen at that point that it wasn't on the map. I mean, this is Harry Potter, so come on. Well, he's not in Ravenclaw for this reason. I'm pretty sure when I was little, I figured this out. Like, oh, he must be in the room of the requirement because it's not there. Yeah, I was. I definitely was like, he's in the room of requirement when like somebody be standing, like Crab and Goyle were standing in the hallway, and I'm like, is it the hallway where the room of requirement is? 
So Harry gets overly obsessed about what Draco's doing to the point where he's not even interested in Quidditch anymore. He wants the match against Hufflepuff to end fast so he can go see what Draco's up to. So he is going to try to catch the snitch ASAP because before the match, he saw Draco heading off with two girls, which we know are Crab and Goyle disguise, but Harry doesn't know this at this time. Harry gets way, way obsessed because he has Dobby and Creature tell Draco to see what he's doing. And during one of their updates, Dobby tells Harry that Draco has been going off to the seventh floor with a variety of students. And this is when our friend Harry Potter has a brain blast. The room of requirement, said Harry, smacking himself hard on the forehead with advanced potion making. Hermione and Ron stared at him. That's where he's been sneaking off to. That's where he's been doing whatever he's doing. And I bet that's why he's been disappearing off the map. Come to think of it, I've never seen the Room of Requirement on there. Maybe the Marauders never knew the room was there, said Ron. I think it'll be part of the magic of the room, said Hermione. If you need it to be unplottable, it will be. So I'm curious to see what you guys think. Do you think that it's what Ron says that the Marauders didn't know it was there so they didn't put it on it? Or what Hermione said that it's just the magic of the room that doesn't show when someone's in there. I think it could quite possibly be both. I mean, we don't know if the Marauders knew or not about it, but it's not very well known, so it's highly likely that they didn't know about it. I mean, even Fred and George didn't know about it. We heard that in the fifth book when they were like, wow, how'd you find this room? Um, So, I mean, it could very well be that they just had no idea it was there. Um, but it could also be that the magic of the room kept it off the map, or a combination of both. Like, Draco didn't want to be found, so that was kept off the map. But if he was, if he did want to be found, then it maybe it wasn't on there because the Marauders didn't know. Yeah, I agree with what Lizzie is saying, because you have to request what you want out of the room. So you request for it to be unplottable. That's true. So now that Harry knows where Draco is going... He makes frequent trips to the Room of Requirement and tries to get in, but we all know that he doesn't have any luck with this. One day, Harry's on the seventh floor trying to get into the Room of Requirement when he looks at the map and sees that Draco is in a boy's bathroom on the floor below with Moaning Myrtle. Obviously, Harry wants to know what this is about, so he goes down and this is where that big duel happens where Harry first sees Draco crying, saying that he can't do it, he'll kill him, meaning the whole task that Voldemort had set him to do. And so Draco sees Harry, they duel, Draco tries to hit him with Crucio, but Harry hits Draco with Sectumsempra. Not good. So that's that whole part. That's the main part when the map is used in Half-Blood Prince, trying to find out what Draco's doing, but it's also used at the end as well. So after Harry and Dumbledore planning to go to the cave and get the Horcrux, which we know to be the fake one, Harry gives the map to Ron and Hermione and tells them to use it and keep their eye on Draco and Snape because Dumbledore will be out of the castle. Harry also knows at this point that Draco has been successful in whatever he was doing because when he was up there and saw Professor Trelawney, she said that Draco was celebrating. Or she didn't know it was Draco, but she said they were celebrating and she got thrown out of the room, but Harry knows it was Draco. So Harry's very nervous at this point. Before Harry leaves them, he tells them to round up the other DA members to help them out if something would happen. So Ron has the map at this point a little later on, and he sees that Draco is not on the map. So he 
Neville and Jenny go up to the seventh floor, and after about an hour that they've been up there, Draco comes out wearing his hand of glory, and when all the other Death Eaters come out, he tosses Perubium instant darkness powder into the air, and all the Death Eaters get into the school. So I just think that the map's uses in this book are surrounded by an aura of darkness, because like when harry was trying to know what draco was doing it was hard for him to like figure it out because the map didn't show the room of requirement so that was very mysterious and then also at the end here it failed to help them during the battle of the astronomy tower because the death eaters ended up getting in it's a mixed bag really because harry's giving it to ron and hermione as kind of precautionary but he's also telling them they have to spy on Malfoy, which is what he was doing, and then it obviously doesn't work out. But the map also moves the plot along in this book because Harry was able to find Draco in the bathroom and he was able to confront him. Yeah, I feel like out of all the books, I feel like this is the one that it's mostly used as a plot device. Yes, it's used in the other books for, like, scenes in them, but consistently throughout this entire book, it's Harry constantly checking the map and seeing what's going on. It shows development of not only, like, the plot line, but, like, how the use of an object. It's the same object, but if you're looking at the way it's been used from three to four to five, and now we're in six, it goes from being, like, a tool that's used occasionally for, like trying to get away with things versus at this point Harry's trying to use it as more of a tool to like he knows that Draco's doing something for Voldemort so it's got real world implications and it just kind of like it shows how they're growing up and like it's becoming more of a serious thing that they're fighting and they're not just you know mad that they didn't get to go to Hogsmeade they're now like fighting wizard hitler yeah i agree and you can also see that with the invisibility cloak too because at the beginning of the series they were just using it to like sneak around the castle go down to hagrid's etc but once you get to deathly hallows if they didn't have the invisibility cloak they wouldn't have been able to like spy on the ministry for three weeks i think it was to see what was going on they wouldn't have been able to just apparate to not be seen so like that was very important there so yeah i totally agree how these objects and the ways that they're used kind of reflects them growing up and both of them have the potential for good as well as evil yeah exactly so finally we're on to deathly hallows the first time we see the marauders map in the last book is on harry's 17th birthday harry is back up in ron's room and he's putting some of his most prized possessions that he thinks are worthless into his mokeskin purse that Hagrid gave him. So he puts in the Marauder's Map, the Shard from Sirius's Enchanted Mirror, and R.A.B.'s Locket. So I love how Harry thinks these items are worthless because clearly they're not. The map comes up again, as I will talk about in a few minutes. Um, but also, the Shard of Glass really saves Harry and the others' lives because Aberforth has the other mirror and he's able to send Dobby to the cellar at Malfoy Manor to help them. And then also, Harry gives R.A.B.'s locket to Creature and this kind of allows the elf to have a little bit more appreciation toward Harry, no matter how small it is. You're supposed to put your most prized possessions in there, and they are pretty special. 
I feel bad that Harry kind of thinks that these items are worthless because if you have things that are special to you, just because they alone don't hold a significant purpose doesn't mean they're not important. Yeah, just because something doesn't have like a like clearly identified functional use is still important and has a purpose even if it is for like your emotional well-being. So even at this point where Harry doesn't realize what's going to happen with all the items, they're important to him and having them with him can help bring a little bit of more stability to his life and he definitely needs that in this book yeah definitely so we see the map come up again later on in the book after harry and ron have their big fight in the tent meanwhile harry has started bringing out the marauder's map and examining it by wand light he was waiting for the moment when ron's labeled dot would reappear in the corridors of hogwarts proving that he had returned to the comfortable castle protected by his status of pure blood. However, Ron did not appear on the map, and after a while, Harry found himself taking it out simply to stare at Ginny's name in the girls' dormitory, wondering whether the intensity with which he gazed at it would break into her sleep, that she would somehow know he was thinking about her, hoping that she was alright. Can we just talk about how adorable this is? It's like honestly one of the cutest things Harry does, and he doesn't often like let his emotional side get to him but this is like the cutest thing because he's just like staring there hoping that he she's thinking about him i also want to say that i think it was extremely rude of him to be like oh ron has just abandoned us and returned to the castle yes they had a fight but i don't think ron would have returned to hogwarts and he didn't i mean i think it would still be kind of like a fair thing to think like Ron had been complaining most of the time, and, like, Harry can kind of, like, jump to conclusions sometimes, and so just coming from a point of, like, anxiety, like, we don't talk about Harry's anxiety a lot because it's not super mentioned, but I could definitely see myself if, like, I'm on this big, like, hunt for horcruxes and my best friend walks out on me. I could I could see thinking that maybe he just went back to Hogwarts because... Like, Harry's the reason he didn't go back to Hogwarts. I mean, I think it could also be seen as, like, Harry checking to kind of comfort himself. Like, if Ron's dot isn't there, that means that Ron didn't just completely give up and go back to school. So I feel like he's not really checking it to see if he's there, just to see if he's there is more of, like, an emotional thing and hoping that he doesn't go back. When Harry and crew go back and they're in the room of requirement... They discuss the whole situation that Harry is looking for something that belonged to Ravenclaw, but he doesn't say it's a Horcrux. He also doesn't know what it is. But they come to the conclusion that maybe it could be the lost item, and Luna goes to take him to Ravenclaw Tower. But the map comes in great use here because Neville leads him over to a steep staircase that leads out of the room of requirement. But every time somebody leaves, they end up in a different place in the castle as to not be caught by the Death Eaters who are running the school. And so when Harry and Luna go out, they check the map to see where they are, and they are on the fifth floor. Also, the map is very important in helping them get to Ravenclaw Tower without being caught. 
Not only because Hogwarts is a very dark place now, it's nothing like it used to be, but also because the DA members in the Room of Requirement are the only ones who know that Harry is back, so Harry getting caught would not be good. Yes, he has his invisibility cloak, but having the map is an extra precaution to make sure that nobody is in his path. So when the Battle of Hogwarts is about to begin, the school is evacuating, so the students who are not of age or the students who are of age and want to leave are going to the room of requirement to leave through the passageway that leads into the hot head. So during this whole situation, Harry cannot find Ron and Hermione, so he checks the map, and like the situation with Draco, he just first assumes that he just can't find them among all the other dots that are moving rapidly through the school and out through the river requirement. We know that they are in the Chamber of Secrets, so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the river requirement. Yes, I do think that there was a possibility that the Marauders knew about the river requirement, but I do not think that they knew about the Chamber of Secrets. They definitely didn't know about that. So I feel like this is an instance where the Chamber of Secrets isn't on the map because the Marauders didn't know of it to put it on there. So what do you guys think? I agree that they wouldn't have known about the Chamber of Secrets and that's why it's not on there. But if the Basilisk was able to come out and petrify people, why didn't the twins see it? I mean, I know it was only out for short periods of time, but if they were looking at the map, they probably would have seen it. Or... Do you think they didn't see it because we haven't seen creatures labeled on the map? Like, we haven't seen house elves on the map? Yeah, I definitely think that's it. I think it's more people. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, I don't think that the basilisk would have shown up because it's an animal. But I also am wondering about... So, I just finished reading Chamber of Secrets. And they talked about how they were miles beneath the school. And it seemed like they were under the lake. So... It might not be on there because it's not really part of the castle or even necessarily on the grounds. Like, they go through, like, quite some plumbing to get down all the way into the chamber. Plus, the map really only shows rooms. It's not showing, like, it doesn't say it's showing, like, the boiler room or the other things that surely must exist. Uh, Maybe Harry's just not checking the right spot or... Again, they probably didn't know the Chamber of Secrets existed. So there's so many possibilities with that one. So it's so interesting to see all the different ways the map is used throughout the series. From simply being used as a helpful tool for the trio and for rule breaking, to being used for evil, like we saw in Goblet of Fire with Barty Crouch Jr., this map is truly one of a kind, and I think it's one of the most incredible and unique magical objects in the series. I agree, and that is the reason why I picked it for this episode, because as a kid, I grew up loving the map, because I was like, oh, there's so many ways that you could go on adventures and have fun with it, but as a now-graduated English major, I'm like, ooh, here are, like, the five million ways you can analyze this. Yeah, the map is such a versatile tool in this series, so, like, the invisibility cloak is really only ever used to like make them invisible and there's only so many ways that that can like be manipulated like yeah they could be invisible to go sneak somewhere or they can be invisible to hide from death eaters but it's still really only making them invisible but the map is like showing so many different activities and is able to be used in so many different contexts even when like they're not at Hogwarts so when we were talking about Harry was looking in on Ginny 
it's just a totally different way of looking at some of these objects that I don't really think any of the other magical objects have in the same way that the map does. Yeah, I really like how you brought up Ginny again and how Harry was looking at her dot because that brings up the point that this map works even if it's not in Hogwarts. Like a lot of things, like I'm I'm thinking about like wireless devices that you have to be like in range for it to work. But like he was like off hunting horcruxes. He was nowhere near the castle and he was still able to just tap in. So, so we swear that I'm up to no good and it came on. Like he was able to read it. So I think that's really cool. The map runs on 4G and not Bluetooth. <laughs> also, my favorite part about this is that it's one of those objects, like we were saying, that looks useless, but is really useful. And since it's a really old piece of parchment and it's charmed, I think it's cool because I don't think it'll ever break. No, like I wonder what would have happened if Snape actually threw it in the fire and it burned. I'm imagining some sort of fantastic explosion as <laughs> the magic that's been shoved into this folded piece of parchment just like poofs. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode about the Marauders map. Lizzie, how did you like being on? It was amazing. I am obsessed with this podcast. I don't usually do podcasts, but I love this one. And it was a new but amazing experience to be part of it with you guys well thank you so much honestly that means the world to us yeah that's so sweet and we're definitely going to have you back again soon thank you all so much for listening our next episode comes out on christmas so stay tuned for a very special one bye 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 thank you for listening to this chapter of the half-blood princesses a harry potter podcast Hedwood's theme and Leaving Hogwarts in this episode were originally composed by John Williams and arranged by me. Until next time, mark this page with a magical bookmark.